Our Bible reading this morning is from 1 Peter 1, verses 1 to 12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obeyed, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him, and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have not been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels look to long, long to look into these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, everyone. Oh, very quiet this morning. <laughs> Trepidation or anticipation? We'll wait and see. Uh, good to be back at church with you. I've had a couple of weeks off. It's really nice to, nice to be back with you this morning. Uh, let me pray for us as we reflect on God's word this morning. Kind Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would apply it to our hearts and minds this morning. So that we would know the Lord Jesus Christ more and be made more like him. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, this morning we start a, uh, a series looking at the a New Testament letter written by the Apostle Peter, 1 Peter. And we're going to spend a few weeks doing that over the course of this last term of the year. Uh, it's a great book, um, which I suspect a lot of people in the building here at least have read at some point in time. But a great book for us to reflect on in our current context I used to run a Bible study and every year we'd change over who, who was in the Bible study. And one year we had a, a young girl, she was a university student, about 19, and we were talking about the recession, 1991, you know, the recession we had to have, etc. And um, she said, she meekly put her hand up at one point. She said, oh, I'm sorry to ask this, this is a silly question, but what does the word recession mean? And uh, we, we all kind of stopped realised she didn't know this word. And it wasn't because she was silly, it's because she'd never experienced one. She'd never experienced one. And uh, maybe her parents had, 
experienced it in some way, shape or form, but she had never lived through a recession. It was a reminder, I guess, of what our life here in Australia has been like for decades. We've lived through a season of unusual prosperity, wealth, calm and comfort. And now, in this last six to, uh, six to eight months of this year, bushfires and a pandemic, we've had to experience a new level of difficulty. And so we start to talk about hardship. We've started to talk more about suffering. Um, although, of course, the reality is even our experience of the pandemic is nothing compared to other nations around the world. But we have talked about those concepts more. Here's what's interesting. The Bible... The Bible talks about suffering all the time and it doesn't shy away from it. In fact, it links hardship, suffering, isolation, the wilderness experience, so to speak, right to the core of the identity of God's people. And at the start of 1 Peter, in the first verse, famously, Peter addressing a whole bunch of Christian churches throughout the Asia Minor area, addresses them as exiles or other translations might call them aliens or strangers or pilgrims or wanderers in other words people who have no kind of set place of belonging location and the tenure of this whole book is going to be a a a contemplation on how to do life in the midst of hardship in the midst of difficulty and in the midst of suffering what is it to be god's people who are isolated. I mean, that might be the main focus of 1 Peter, but that's actually a constant theme throughout the Bible. God's people have always been people who are slightly on the edge. They're not at the centre. If you think about Abraham himself, his story is of one who God calls to leave behind his family and his nation and go alone. And the nation of Israel itself is a nation uh, which starts off in Egypt in bondage, in slavery, and then even after it's released, spends 40 years in the wilderness. That is the experience of God's people. They enter the promised land, but a few generations along, again, they're in exile, in a land that's not theirs, ruled by a king who's not their king. And the early church, when it, when it, uh, when it forms, for the first 300 years particularly before Constantine, is a group of people who are very much on the outside of culture, on the outside of society. And Peter is writing to that. That's a constant theme. Now, what's interesting about the Bible, though, is not just that it talks about suffering. That in itself is extraordinary, a religious text that is, has so much to say about hardship and suffering. It's not just that it talks about suffering. It's the posture with which the Bible addresses suffering which is startling. And you see it actually in this opening, these opening verses of 1 Peter, a book, as I said, which is going to be all about dealing with hardship because Peter's writing to Christians at a time when Nero is the emperor. He has a sense of what's coming for many believers. He's, see, he's seen it. He's seen it himself. He's experienced it, but he knows it, it's what's coming. And so this book is a lot about hardship and suffering. And yet, did you notice... The words that come out of his mouth are words of joy and praise. And you don't want to let that slip past you too quickly, actually, because 1 Peter is one of the most uplifting texts in the New Testament. And Peter's first words are words of praise. And if we take Peter on face value and we say he means what he's saying, he's not just putting it on, 
the question that must come to us, of course, is how can you genuinely say that? How can the first words that you utter when you're talking about hardship be praise, praise our God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ? How can they be that? And the answer comes almost straight away. Verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. In a sense, the reason why Peter's posture is one of praise, even though he's talking about hardship and suffering, difficulties, is this last word, hope. A new birth into a living hope. If there is one word that would describe the posture of the Christian, of the fundamental experience of a Christian, it is a word of hope. Not despair, not defeat, but hope. Now, hope is actually essential. It's essential to your life. Viktor Frankl was a psychiatrist in Auschwitz. You may have read his famous book, Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, he, was a, he was a Jew, uh, so he was a prisoner. He experienced all the horrors of a concentration camp and lived through it and then wrote about it in his book. And he tells a very in- interesting story at one point in his book about a senior block warden, another Jewish, uh, Jewish inmate, so to speak, who had a very vivid, imi- a mem- uh, a very vivid dream of, um, of, the, of the war ending. He's convinced at the end of the dream, actually, that the war would end on the 30th of March. And he was telling everyone in the block about this. He's convinced the war would end on the 30th of March. And Frankel says something very interesting took place. Around the 28th of March, it became clear to him, actually, that the war was not going to end on the 30th of March. And by the 29th, he got sick. And on the 30th, he became unconscious. And on the 31st, he died. And Frankel says, see, hope is a matter of life and death. Hope is a matter of life and death. We are beings that are, we live by hope. We live by hope. And when hope is taken away from you, you can't live in a season of hopelessness forever. You can't do it. That's Frankel's point, and that's the testimony of Scripture, of course. Uh, If you were here for our vision series, the last of our our, uh, sermons in that series Uh, said to us, we want people who celebrate together for the glory of Christ, and we looked at the Revelation passage. And if you remember, we said to ourselves, the Bible's constant testimony is that we live in light of the future. Well, that's a biblical testimony. Frankl says that's actually seen in real life. As people, we need hope. Now, hope is just one of those words that's become part of our culture. It's everywhere. You don't need to be a Christian to speak about hope anymore, even to accept the necessity for hope in our time and place. I remember watching the 2006 World Cup, FIFA World Cup, and Italy um, scored a goal at the end of a game to progress into last-ditch goal to, to beat their opposition and progress into the next knockout round. It was an extraordinary goal, and the commentator, in a moment of kind of commentary ecstasy, says, "Ecstasy said, hope springs eternal." <laughs> uh, he was quoting Alexander Pope, uh, who was referring to his own Christian heritage, actually. Hope springs eternal. We use hope all the time, but don't take hope for granted because lots of cultures actually don't have a natural tendency to hope at all or to speak about hope, even though they need it. In, in Peter's time, the Greek culture was a fundamentally hopeless culture. 
He's speaking this word into a time and place where people saw life as a, as a painful, dreary experience which ended in just a final long sleep. In fact, I was watching a show last night which ultimately shaped around an Eastern kind of um, mysticism where you all become nothing. You know, if you don't grow up in Western culture, don't take it for granted that you're someone who's oriented in a hopeful way. Our, sense, our appreciation of hope is actually a product of, of the Christian influence in our culture and time. So Peter is saying something very interesting, very challenging. He's starting with, from a premise which not everyone would agree with. But even more than that, even, even look at the religions that we encounter now, what, when they talk about hope, I think it's more like a wishful, it's wishful thinking. No one has certainty about what's on offer, or even whether you can qualify for it, but compare it to what Peter's saying. Peter has such certainty. Verses 4 and 5, he says, This hope is an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. And this inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that's ready to be revealed. Peter's writing to a bunch of Christians who are spread out throughout the area. A lot of them actually would have been Jews, who then left Jerusalem and, and spread. And so when he talks about inheritance, there's, there's another inheritance that comes to mind for them, which is the great inheritance that God gave Israel, the promised land of Canaan. And so Peter says, I'm offering, God is offering you an inheritance that can never perish, spoil the faith. They think about the first inheritance that God offered them in Canaan, as great as that place was. He said, here is a land where you as a nation will flourish. Here is a land where your crops will grow. It's filled with milk and honey, he said. And the houses and the cities are well fortified. It's an extraordinary inheritance he was giving Israel. But they would have known, of course, from their experience of that, that ultimately they all still died. The crops, as good as they were, the fruit still rotted at some point. And they knew that eventually even the glory of the land would fade under God's judgment as plague and famine hit. But Peter says, you know, you had that inheritance back many generations, but God has now given you a new inheritance that will not perish, spoil or fade. Very deliberately, it will not perish. Compared to all the other inheritances you've had, it will not spoil or rot, and it will not fade. And do you see the certainty with which he says, it can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready now to be revealed, he says. See, I think a lot of, a lot of religious visions of the future, of the hope that they're presenting, is hopeful in the sense of this may happen, but Peter says it has happened. You might receive it. Peter says you have received it. You will get it. It is already kept for you. It is already kept for you. This is the kind of hope that the Scriptures is offering. And I think it's just worth saying, whether you agree with Peter or not, whether you, whether you believe what he's got to say here, what the Bible offers is very different to what anyone, any other religion offers. The Bible is claiming to offer a promise, a hope, that is already established. Already established. It is a new and unique hope, apart from any other hope. 
Now, one of the challenges, I guess, some people might say is, well, if, if your hope is so certain and so good, that's great, but what about here and now? This is a book that started off about suffering and hardship and difficulty in life. But has that helped me now? That's what I need. In fact, I think in our culture, the reason we've moved in, in some spaces towards that kind of Eastern mysticism, which is all about, it's all about benefiting here and now. We're less concerned about the future. But don't miss what Peter's saying. And don't miss what the Bible says. You see, this hope is a living hope, says Peter. It's a living hope, a lively hope, a presently active hope. And as we said, even in our vision series, that future impacts the present. That is the constant testimony of the Bible. That the hope that God is providing impacts you presently. It makes you, it shapes you. And we see here in this chapter that Peter is, uh, Peter is establishing two particular benefits that come from it. First of all, verse 6, he says this, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Peter says this, If you have this living hope, you are not governed by your circumstances. If you have this living hope, you are not governed by your circumstances. It's a really, it's a, such a beautifully balanced verse. Peter's not denying the reality of suffering. This is very important. He's not saying suffering doesn't happen. Hey, actually, everything's pretty rosy now because we've, we've got this living hope, because Jesus has done this, because God has promised this. There will be no suffering. Far from it, actually. He says, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. See, God's people are not blindly idealistic. You should be able to come into God's church and see people who are genuinely suffering, who are genuinely going through hardship and difficulty. All kinds of trials, he says. So it's not just the serious medical illness. It's, it's my colleagues don't like me. My boss is hard to me. It's all kinds of trials. There's a full acceptance of that. But do you see that, that here, because you have this hope, Peter says, you are not governed by it. You're not crushed by it. It says, in all this... In all of this, all these various trials, you greatly rejoice nonetheless. Because you have the living hope, it actually shapes the way you encounter suffering. You are not governed by your circumstances. You're not crushed by them. And we live in a time and place where so many people are crushed by their circumstances. Their immediate experience tells them everything about the world. But having a living hope gives you a new experience of your circumstances. Yes, they're real. Yes, sometimes they're very difficult and hard and painful, but you're not crushed by them. In fact, actually, because you're not crushed by them, Peter goes on to say in verse 7, these have come, all those trials, so that the proven genuineness of faith may result in praise, glory, and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. In other words, because you're not crushed by them, you actually, he says, because you have this living hope, see hardships, see these circumstances, the full variety of them, as opportunities to grow. You can use your hardship to grow rather than to be governed by them. This is so important. And I think we know it's true. You know, people who've lived a charm life are often pretty shallow, aren't they? But people who've had real hardship, I mean, the best songs come from heartbreak and pain. And it's true on a profound level spiritually too. You see, you can say, you can say to yourself, I trust God, I know that I'm loved, I'm one of God's children, I believe it all. 
But then hardship comes along. You know, maybe you, you lose your job. You say, I, I never worried about money. I'm not ruled by the idol of wealth. But then hardship comes along. You lose your job. You become anxious. And it reveals something about you. Actually, no, you were someone whose idol was wealth or was success or was ambition. And it's been taken from you. And you're struck by this and it really rocks you. And so what do you do? You start to pray more. You start to read the Bible more. You think, I need to know the Lord more because actually I was building my life on the wrong stuff. And you start to talk to people more about this. And what happens is you draw closer to God. You see, the circumstances don't govern you, but they can, if you've got a living hope, be the opportunity to grow you. To grow you. You see, the beauty of having a living hope, Peter says, is you are not governed by your circumstances anymore. You are not someone whose total understanding of life is your immediate experience. But those experiences can now be used to grow you in greater depth of character and, more important, in faith. In faith, in reliance, in confidence in God. And I guess the, the, the application for us is Don't be afraid of hardship. Don't be afraid of hardship. Don't run away from it. If the Bible can teach us anything right now, in this time and place, it's this. God can use your hardship. Wherever it is on the spectrum, if it's just as simple as I have to work from home now and the kids are around, to my my friend has contracted an illness and died as a result of the pandemic, to the full extent of God, the Bible says to you, God can use that in light of his great promises to grow you and others at the same time. Now, of course, that's great, except if you're like me, our constant tendency still is to, uh, to run away from moments of hardship, isn't it? You wake up, you feel anxious, anxious about someone's health, anxious about your financial situation, anxious about your children, about their mental health. And and you forget, you forget the opportunity that each of those moments presents you with. And I think we make that mistake, not because we don't have any hope. Most of us, like I said, don't live the Viktor Frankl problem, partly because you just can't live that for too long. You can't live in hopelessness for too long. I think for most of us, actually, the problem is that we, we just have the wrong hopes. You know, our hopes are for simple things like let's have well-balanced children. I just hope that people will value the work that I do. I just hope that I can have a comfortable retirement. And and all of those things are fine. They're not bad things, but I I guess once they become the the hopes that are driving our life, that's that's when we're going to run away from hardship. Because all of those are circumstantially driven, you see. And when you come to hard circumstances, they're going to burn up those hopes. They're going to burn up those hopes. You see, if your greatest hope is that your children will be well balanced, and then one of your kids brings home a friend who's a bit rough and ready, a bit badly behaved, you're not going to want to welcome that person into your family. Because they're going to go straight at your deepest hope and desire, aren't they? Or worse still, if your child is badly behaved, you're going to find it very hard to exercise grace to that rebellious child. Rather, you're just going to want to apply the law and beat them into place and make them well behaved. 
You're not going to want to embark on the hard work of graciously parenting your child over and over again at the risk of not having a well-balanced child or a well-behaved child. If your great hope is that people will value your work, you're going to find it very hard to do the hard work which no one sees. You're going to find it hard to be a parent. You're going to find it hard to care for your elderly parents. It, why? Because that's not, that's not feeding your deepest hope and your deepest desire. If you want to just have a comfortable retirement and then the stock market hits your portfolio, you're going to ha- find it hard to be generous because those circumstances are hitting your hopes. See, the problem, the problem is not that we have no hope, that we have the wrong hope. And, and the, real, the real sadness of that situation is we miss an opportunity for difficulty to shape and grow us because we run away from those circumstances. We don't see them as moments where God can work. The very thing that Peter is saying will happen. We pass over that opportunity for that trial, to rejoice in it and to see that trial as a moment that will grow us to the praise and glory and honour of the Lord Jesus Christ. The key is you've got to have the right hopes, right? The question, of course, is how do you recenter your life? How do we shift from those mundane, short-term, circumstantially driven hopes to the eternal, living hope that Peter is saying is on offer? It's tempting to say, well, I need to go back to verse 4 and 5 and keep telling myself that I have a hope that will never perish, spoil or fade. Well, that's kind of true. But they're just abstract realities and they're not going to transform your heart. No, the way you do that is you start to set your gaze on a person. See what Peter says in verse 8. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. Peter's insight is, see, the, the person who has a living hope is someone who is utterly captivated by Jesus Christ. They're captivated by him. He's at the centre. You know, a series is called A Life with Christ at the Centre and our graphic has Jesus Christ at the centre of our graphic. The point is, we don't, we're not people who have hope at the centre first and foremost, but we're people who have Jesus Christ at the centre. Why? Because as you're captivated by Jesus and all he's done for you, It gives you the resources to take hold of the hope that God has given you. See, Jesus Christ is the one whose blood was sprinkled for you. He went to the cross for you and I. He paid the price for us. He took all of our impurities with him and went through the great fiery judgment of God. And so we are not not worried that these promises are not for us. You see, if Christ is for us, then these promises are for us, is what the cross says. We cannot be disqualified from these promises because Christ has done everything to qualify us for these promises. He sprinkled you with his blood. It cost him his life. He died the death of a criminal on a cross for you. Though he was imperishable, he became perishable for you so that you might receive what is imperishable. And he's not just God who went to the cross for you. He's God who defeated the tomb for you. 
He's the resurrected King. It's the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead which stamps us, which assures us, which comforts us. Not just that God will give you his promises, but that God's promises are sure. Uh, I remember watching a, a little documentary about Michelle Obama. She was on a book tour after they'd finished in the White House and she came and she met uh, about a dozen uh, African-American women from a church that she used to go to. And they said to her, oh, Michelle, you, you really gave us hope. You and, you and your husband gave us hope. She said, oh, well, that's really great. What about, what about our time in the White House gave you hope? She said, they said, it's not your policies. It wasn't, it wasn't what you did for health care. It, it, it wasn't what you did for the poor. No, no, it was that you, an African-American woman, and her husband were in the White House for the first time. You see, she said, it wasn't just that you had laid out an abstract possibility of the future. You were an embodiment of a change that had taken place in our country. And Jesus Christ is the embodiment of the great change that God has taken place in the world and creation. With Jesus Christ, when you gaze at him, you are seeing what God will offer you, the resurrection of your body, of life everlasting. When, G when, G when, Paul, when Peter says... I'll give you, God has given you an inheritance that will never perish, spoil or fade. He's not talking about an abstract thing. He is captivated by Jesus Christ and his resurrected body that will never perish, spoil or fade. And that is now ours too. And you know, to the extent that you believe that, the words that come out of your heart are words of praise and thanksgiving. You know, the more you praise God, the deeper is your understanding, your reflection, your, your captivation with Jesus Christ and all he's done for you. Put Jesus at the centre of your life. Put all he's done for you at the centre of your life. He's done it for you. He went to the cross for you. He's done it with power. He broke the tomb for you. And so it's sure. Entrust yourself to him. Let me pray. Kind Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great promise of your word, this great word that even angels long to look into, the great gospel that Jesus Christ has broken death for us, that he lives, he reigns, he rules, that he's taken away everything that could stop us from claiming it as he gave his life for us. Heavenly Father, fill our vision with the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to love him, to be captivated by him, to be filled by him, to be enriched by him, to be people whose hope, whose shapes, whose desires are centred on him. We pray this in Jesus' name.